Hi, this is Paul. Last week I made a video, Aaron Wren's Three Worlds, Evangelicalism and the Winsome Wars. Beneath this conversation are a lot of issues, not just tactics in terms of how to fight a culture war, but questions about has secularity played itself out? How do we continue to deal with religious pluralism? Um, what is the relationship between what in modernity is labeled as religious behavior and um, real reality, whatever that is, that gets into God number one. And just today I noted, I've, I've been wanting to, I've been following what Hezi has been doing on Jacob's channel because he's sort of been following Israeli politics. And if there's sort of an epicenter for that, it's in Israel, and I, I, I had to, I had to run, but I just had a, had to, tried to summarize a little bit of what I saw happening. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just get that in here if I can. Um, and that might not be very useful. It's really, it's institutions that manage that complexity in terms of enormously more. Paul, go ahead. Sorry. A couple observations. I love this conversation. I think this is. This kind of conversation is so foundational because number one, obviously you're, you're, we're dealing with pluralism in a way. We're dealing with enormously more history that we've had to deal with, enormously more complexity in terms of our picture of the world, uh, institutions that manage that complexity, um, and then obviously pluralism with respect to all sorts of things. So that's obviously one of the issues. A second issue is what do we mean by this word religious? Because in, in second, the, the word as we use it most of the time only has meaning within secularity. And it is re the religious space is a sort of, on one hand, a privileged space, at least in the American system and in many systems. But it is also a, it's felt to be a fictitious space in that it, it is not pragmatic and it doesn't impinge on the real world. That's, as Mark Lefebvre says, objective material reality. That, that, culture of materialism and so again just listening to you know conversations about marriage conversations about dietary laws i mean these are these are things that in the west it was presumed to had been laid to rest in the public space uh centuries ago and now they're back and they're back in islam they're back in israel they're back in uh hindu spaces and we're increasingly seeing them in secular spaces, but just without the tag religious. But the, the more that these narratives get worked out, just like with all the woke stuff, the more and more people are saying, no, that's, that's actually religious because it's functioning as religious things did in an imagined secular space. So, and, and, and I, you know, you're probably right, Yosef, that maybe I'm not going to learn as much as I hope to, but just listening to the conversation, I'm learning a ton because part of the blessing of diversity is that you can watch someone else work a different system and you can find parallels and patterns that are separate from your system. And the reason you can't see them in your system is that you're just way too close to it. And, and, and it also strikes me as interesting that, so 
one of the things that I see as a Christian in terms of the, and I know Yosef has a long list of issues and corrections, and some of your corrections are correct. I'll have to say, Yosef, because and I appreciate I'm glad, I'm glad some of them. <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate you pushing back on things and comments, and I know I don't always get a chance to respond, but I always read you and I always respect you. Um, but you know, I think from a Christian perspective, part of what Christians see is that the story of Israel is this. It's it's a microcosm for all of the world. On one hand, it's it's like a it's like a small scale model, and all of the issues in the in all the global issues are in some ways played out in the microcosm, and it's it's fascinating today to see. I mean, the Jews were so oppressed and marginalized that in many ways that couldn't function for a very long time. But now, it, like you keep saying, Kezi, that you know the, the superpower of the Middle East, they're the they're the you know, in some ways, they're the United States of a very different neighborhood. Correct. And so then we're, so it's like, okay, Israel is to the Middle East as in some ways the United States is to the world. And, you know, you've got Judaism here, you've got Christianity here. Although, of course, the Christianity in America has, is the product of so much of the secularity, as is certain parts of Judaism. But then the proportion of, I mean the Doug Wilsons of the world, the 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 portion of really hyper religious American Protestants in America is tiny compared to the overall picture. So much of the rest of the picture just accepts secularity in that whole world. So watching as the as the percentages change in Israel, but again, I think in many ways, when you look at things like birth rates, which of course are driving a lot of this in terms of the observant. Um, it's, you just see sort of an acceleration in the, in the Israel model, as opposed to the, the, the very large scale model. So those are just off the cuff observations. And now I've got people here and I got to go take care of them, but you two continue and I will definitely watch it. And I might even clip some of this because to me, this is, this is a really, so I've, I've, John Verveke sent me a little. Uh, you know, the first episode of his After Socrates, which I'm going to watch. I'm going to talk to him about it. And, but, I mean, that in many ways is the same thing because John Verveke self-consciously sees the failure of the religious functioning in the society, but accepts this, you know, doesn't accept some of the, the uh, it's just, it's massively complicated, but you're right in that it's very integral to the entire project of this little corner and what we're doing. We're also just a little microcosm. And I think that's part of the reason why the tiny little Jewish corner of this little corner, which isn't itself very large, is at the same time outsized, energetic, um, significant, insightful. And, and that's somehow what the Jews have always been with respect to the world. So, and even in the history of the West. So...
as, as uh, uh, Chris noted, um, Aaron's framework in the last, I don't know, nine months or so has really kind of taken off and been an object of a lot of com uh, conversation, commendation, criticism, and so forth. And he mentioned one of the main criticisms that has been leveled, um, which is, hasn't Christianity always lived in a negative world? How can you talk about these three worlds when Christianity's always lived in a negative world? In fact, um, hostility to genuine Christianity is the norm. Um, and I use genuine there deliberately. Um, after all, the Bible says the world will hate us all the way back in the days of Jesus. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my namesake, Mark, uh, Mark 13, 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, 1 John 3, 13. Um, Jesus uh, says, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, John 17, 14. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. And so isn't that the, a perennial, permanent thing for the last 2,000 years? Why can we talk now about a distinct time called negative world? So I want to kind of drill into that. Um, and here's the, the clarification that I want to drill in on. It's um, rooted in some uh, in C.S. Lewis. And here's the major claim. The three worlds framework is fundamentally about what C.S. Lewis called the Tao. That's the major claim. It's fundamentally about what C.S. Lewis called the Tao, and the rest of my time is going to be kind of unpacking what I mean by that. So what is the Tao? Tao is spelled T-A-O. Uh, in case you're wondering, my, my kids, I, I heard me talking about that one time, and they thought it was D-O-W, and so they were trying to figure out, like, what that, like, like is that the stock market? I think I've seen something on the news, and I was like, no, it's different. Um, so they didn't know. Um, the Tao, uh, T-A-O. Lewis introduces this term in his little book on education called The Abolition of Man, which is um, Lewis's book for our moment, okay? There, if, you, if you need to go, you need more book recommendations, go read The Abolition of man. And in that book, he sets forth two fundamentally different visions of reality and two approaches to education which flow from them. And so the Tao specifically is Lewis's term for the objective, rational, and moral order embedded in the cosmos. That's what the Tao is, the objective, rational, and moral order embedded in the cosmos. Here's, here's a quote. Until quite. There's a little bit of silence at the end of that. I had to erase about six minutes of work, but fortunately it was only six minutes of work. Sorry about that. Um, you can hear me now, I assume. 
So Peterson in Ephesus gave a talk at the inauguration or something of Ralston College, his, maybe his inauguration of being chancellor. He picked that moment. He had an introduction to it. There's a lot going on here. The part of what Peterson is doing in this talk is, is kind of giving a summary of where he's at in terms of his attempt to integrate what modernity calls religion into his system. And, and in that way, a lot of what we're getting at is post-secular and post-religious because it gets into the question of what are the, what are the foundations of our, of our world? And as I mentioned before, secularity had within it implicit religious structures that propped it up. And as those implicit religious structures and assumptions are sort of being pushed away, the question is, will all of the blessings of secularity be pushed away? What is the What are the blessings of secularity? It was a way that pluralism could be managed with a minimum of bloodshed. That was the blessing of secularity, and that was in many ways what developed out of the Protestant Reformation. So now, as modernity is receding, as the old simplistic categories of non-religion and religion and sort of the hallowed status of science. Now, the the video that I just did, which I knew would get a lot of interesting feedback, it is the, the issue is not that the issue is not that science is wrong or science is not useful or science can't yield knowledge or science isn't tremendously helpful, especially in the development of technology. The issue is that Science is not God, and and you cannot and you and science cannot establish itself. John Verveke makes that point often. Um, science cannot establish its own presuppositions, and science is a tool within a much broader worldview. And so much of that broader worldview was the inheritance of Christianity. And now, as a lot of that Baconian, Lockean, Scottish um, realism assumptions, those philosophical assumptions are sort of passing away as we begin to understand just how, how, how complex the world, how dependent we are on these models, how implicit these models are, how baked in these models are. Now suddenly we're once again having to deal with questions of reality. And so this is, Peterson begins with the logos. Let's let, I, I'm sort of I'm sort of debating which one to start with because I want to get to Joe Regney's talk because they kind of do the same thing. So maybe we'll start with Peterson and then we'll go to Regney. So this is pretty good, eh? <laughs> now, it's really interesting that in the Bible, first words are important. This is pretty good, eh? He establishes himself as um, comfortable. He it's a good way to it's a, it's just a it's a good way to um, to help the audience settle in and say, okay, we're happy together. We're smiling here. Um, we're going to be really here before I dive into the the big stuff. So I was thinking today, well, and for a long time about what I wanted to talk about, and I guess I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm always trying to bring together an unending stream of thought that I've been developing, I would say, for well, for 40 years, really. And I thought I would try to extend that tonight maybe farther than I've been able to manage before. And this seems to be exactly the right place 
to do it. Uh, in Stephen's opening remarks, he mentioned that this geographical locale is very tightly associated with the emergence of the idea of the logos, particularly on the Greek side, but also, as it turns out, on the Christian side. And it's really the bringing together of the concepts, the dual concepts of the logos, from the Greek and the Christian side that produced, for better or worse, and hopefully for better, the modern world. And so I want to walk through some ideas that I've been developing tonight and make comment on them and see if I can lay them out in something approximating an intelligible form, which would be the right thing to do, given that we're talking about the Logos. So you might think about the Logos. It's worthwhile and useful to think about the Logos as something like the intrinsic order of the cosmos. Of course, that begs the question in some sense, well, a number of questions. What do you mean by intrinsic? What do you mean by order? What do you mean by cosmos? And Okay, pay attention to this, because this will be exactly what Rigney's talking about. You can break the cosmos down to begin with in something, into, 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 into two subcategories, macrocosmic and microcosmic. And uh, you can think about the microcosm and the macrocosm in a purely objective sense. You can think about the microcosm as the hidden world beneath the resolution of our vision. So, of course, there's an unbelievably active world of hidden complexity at work at levels of resolution much higher than we can see, moving all the way down to the quantum realm. And as scientists, we've been very good at elucidating the nature of that microcosm. And then you could think of the macrocosm as the external world that extends up above us. I, I just have to make a comment from my little office. I'm, I'm also watching John Verveke's, the first episode of John Verveke's After Socrates. Yeah, the, the, the production qualities have gone up a lot from Jordan Peterson and a dirty t-shirt in front of a PC in his room. That's a good thing. This, this talk is visually stunning. It's technologically excellent. The sound is excellent. There's a ton to this. It's interesting. It'll look great on my OLED TV in my living room. The times there are changing. Into the objective cosmos itself. But there's another way of thinking about that that brings the psychological on board. And, and that is that the microcosm is, in some sense, the objective material world that beckons at higher levels of resolution. But the macrocosm is something more conceptual and psychological rather than something objective and external. And so that's a good thing to keep in mind as we, um, as we move forward through this exercise in thought. Another way of thinking about this so we can hit the underlying conceptual target from a multitude of different dimensions, you could, you could also think that we're beset by two mysteries, in some sense. We have the world of what matters, and the degree to which the world of what matters is the most real is indeterminate, because it depends on how you define reality. If you define reality as that which exists in the objective world, then the world of what matters is not fundamental. But it's my observation that we act as if the world 
of what matters is more real than the world of matter. And I think, in some sense, the most compelling evidence for that, even to a skeptic, and it's a pessimistic form of evidence, but it suffices sometimes pessimistic evidence is the most potent, the reality of pain is undeniable. And it's not amenable to rational argumentation. It announces its existence. And for a long time, I think I thought, in some real sense, that there was no more fundamental reality than pain. And there's an ethical dimension to that, too, because if you accept the reality of pain, there seems to come with it an impetus to eliminate unnecessary pain. And to some degree, we can understand that as the basis of the moral impulse, and maybe to eliminate the unnecessary pain of, of the innocent, like the unnecessary pain of children, for example. And so, well, we accept the existence of pain as something so real that we will almost instantaneously act on it. And I would say that's especially the case in the case, say, of infants. Okay. Now, he's, he's gone a little bit further than Rigney, but now I want to jump into Rigney. And again, you'll notice concern once more with, okay, what do we mean by, what on earth is the real world and how do we know it? And he mentioned one of the main criticisms that has he's, he's talking about Ren's speech. And, and, and also, you know, part of my concern in this is we're, we're always having to reduce the world into something that is grippable to us. And so when you look at a, a schema like positive, neutral, negative, it's reduced down into sort of thumbs up, thumbs down. Which way are things going? And then, of course, there's critique because it's a, it's a, it's a massive reduction, and so there's, there's plenty of room for critique. Been leveled, um, which is, hasn't Christianity always lived in a negative world? How can you talk about these three worlds when Christianity's always lived in a negative world? In fact, um, hostility to genuine Christianity is the norm. Um, and I use genuine there deliberately. Um, after all, the Bible says the world will hate us all the way back in the days of Jesus. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my namesake, Mark, uh, Mark 13, 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, 1 John 3, 13. Um, Jesus uh, says, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, John 17, 14. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. And so isn't that... The, a perennial, permanent thing for the last 2,000 years. Why can we talk now about a distinct time called negative world? So I want to kind of drill into that. Um, and here's the, the clarification that I want to drill in on. It's um, rooted in, uh, in C.S. Lewis. And here's the major claim. The three worlds framework is fundamentally about what C.S. Lewis called the Tao. That's the major claim. It's fundamentally about what C.S. Lewis called the Tao, and the rest of my time is going to be kind of unpacking what I mean by that. So what is the Tao? Tao is spelled T-A-O. Uh, in case you're wondering, my, my kids, I, I heard me talking about that one time, and they thought it was D-O-W, and so they were trying to figure out, like, what that, like, like, is that the stock market? I think I've seen something on the news, and I was like, no, it's different. Now, this is... One of the things that this little corner can always learn from preachers. Preachers understand their audience, and they understand they're going to have to, they're going to have to define their terms, so um, it can be scalable. 
Um, so they didn't know um, the Tao, uh, T-A-O. Lewis introduces this term in his little book on education called The Abolition of Man, which is um, Lewis's book for our moment. Okay, there, if, you, if you need to go, you need more book recommendations. Now, this has been Lewis's book for a very long time. And again, if we get into the question of modernity, nominalism, Lewis is wrestling with things that we have been wrestling with for really 800 years. Recommendations, go read The Abolition of Man. And in that book, he sets forth two fundamentally different visions of reality and two approaches to education which flow from them. And so the Tao specifically is Lewis's term for the objective, rational, and moral order embedded in the cosmos. That's what the Tao is, the objective, rational, and moral order embedded in the cosmos. Here's, here's a quote. Until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous, fitting or unfitting, to it. They believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval, our disapproval, our reverence, or our contempt. So it's this doctrine, this is Lewis still, the doctrine of objective value. The belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things that we are. Okay, so Peterson basically gets at this through the logos and intelligibility where he'll, he'll, he'll get to later, but it's, there, there's a lot of parallels here in terms of what Lewis is getting at and what Peterson wants to get at with respect to logos. Those who know the Tao can hold that to call children delightful or to call old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions, but instead to recognize a quality in them which demands a certain response from us whether we make it or not. And then Lewis uses himself as an example. He says, I myself, this is surprising from the author of Narnia, right? I myself, Lewis says, do not enjoy the society of small children. <laughs> he says, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself. Just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. And because our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, therefore, he says, emotional states, our emotions, can be in harmony with reason when we feel liking for what ought to be approved or out of harmony with reason when we perceive liking is due but cannot feel it. So that's the doubt. When our thoughts, unpack this, when your thoughts correspond to the objective order of reality, we talk about truth. When our emotions and our wills correspond to the objective order of reality, we speak of goodness. That's what those words mean. When your thoughts correspond to reality, that means true. When your will and your emotions respond to reality, that's good. And so again, the Tao, what I mean, I'm gonna use that phrase a lot and I want you to have in your head, when every time he says that, it's, it's a weird word, but it's the objective order of the universe and the human way of life that corresponds to it. That's what it means. 
Um, he says in the book that uh, other terms for it would be uh, natural law, uh, traditional morality. And just a little side note, the reason he calls it the Tao, like why does he do that? Why use that term? Why not use natural law? That sounds uh, more accessible maybe. Um, he uses it for the sake of brevity. It's just one syllable. And in order to stress its universality. This is important. Lewis claims that a belief in the objective, rational, and moral order of the universe is present not only in Christianity, but in Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Judaism, and the Greek and Roman philosophical tradition, even, he says, in ancient paganism. Okay, this is not a Christ, distinctly Christian thing. This is a universal human thing. And so he uses the word Tao so that you recognize I'm not talking about Christian stuff. I'm talking about human stuff. Uh, what's more... Um, in the, in the appendix to Abolition of Man, he has just a long list of um, uh, different quotes from different books across different religions and so forth that demonstrate the rational and moral demands of those different traditions and how they kind of uh, have significant overlap. So that's universality. Now, for us as Christians, that's not surprising that there would be significant overlap because we believe God created the world, he created us with minds and with hearts, intellects and wills, and he's written the law on our hearts in the form of our conscience. And so it's no surprise that we would see the same moral demands and rational demands showing up elsewhere. That's the Tao. Now, what's the contrast? In contrast, in opposition to the Tao... Okay, and, and I, I thought that was an excellent presentation of Lewis and the Tao and where Lewis is, Lewis is coming from. And I think it's fairly easy then to see the alignment with Peterson and Rigney in, in this question. And so it isn't obvious what's real because it depends in some sense on how you define the term. But my sense is that what people believe is most accurately reflected not in what they say or in the propositions about the world they lay out, but in how they act. And so, and that's also something subject to debate, but it's not a shallow argument to say that your belief is most deeply reflected in your action. In fact, I think in some sense, it's the deepest of arguments. And you know perfectly well that you can say one thing and do another, and you also know that you regard people who do that as hypocrites, and you tend to regard what they do as a more profound pointer to what they believe than what they say. And so you'll call them on that too. And so that means that there are some meanings that we regard as inviolably real. Now, the reason I concentrated on pain is because it's pretty easy to destroy joy. You can do that with a rational critique. Now, now I, I want to pause here again to note that in some ways this is sort of a very different context, obviously, but this is back to sort of professorial Peterson. He's sitting in front of a bunch of students. Now he's on the steps of the library at Ephesus, so it's a very different place than a, a little classroom at University of Toronto, but he's using notes. And um, so it's, it's I, think, I think part of what's good about this video is, is it's sort of a recapturing of something we haven't seen for five years. And we're quite good at that. And you can destroy faith and you can destroy hope and you can destroy enthusiasm. And you can often do that even with a casual word. But pain is much more resistant to that sort of rational dismissal. Uh, I thought over the years, thinking as much as I could about unjust pain, let's say, 
as a fundamental reality, wondering if there is anything more real than that. And then I would say, well, yes, there is. That which dispels pain is more real than pain. And that's because to dispel something, you have to be more powerful than that thing in some sense. And, and then you can ask yourself at all sorts of different levels of analysis, what's capable of dispelling pain? Um, or at least, let's say, rendering pain acceptable, which is a, not perhaps as deep a solution or as desirable a solution, but is also not nothing. And I would say that many of the things we regard as cardinal virtues are virtues, in fact, because if you have them on your side, you can, in fact, contend with and perhaps dispel or triumph over or transcend the inevitable pain and suffering of existence. And I think one of the... Now, again, there's a lot of parallels here. It's, they're not talking about exactly the same thing, but again, you can, you can see sort of Peterson's quality because in, in dealing with something like pain, and giving people, giving modern people a sense of reality of power of that which can either um, make pain, e either justify the endurance of pain or dispel pain as something being more real. That's, a, that's, a, that's actually a very powerful thing to introduce to the imagination that I think is part of why people find Peterson ushering them into a bigger world than just sort of the materialist, physicalist world. Fundamental purposes of education is to provide people with the, the peers and the, <laughs> and the, and the allies to use a word that's been contaminated so terribly, that enable them to stand up nobly in the face of tragedy and still move forward with what is good in mind. And that's a very different purpose than inculcating in people a thoroughly detailed description of the patterns of the objective world. And okay, so right there he's brought in value. And... He's, he's noted that this, this, again, is sort of a public good, something analogous to the Tao. And this is a public good because it helps everyone in terms of dealing with pain. And I'm not saying for a moment that there's nothing useful about the latter, but the former is people starve and thirst in desperation without the former. And so, and those are realities. Now, if, as I said, if you start out with the axiomatic assumption that only what is objective is real, well, then that argument falls flat. But I think there's no reason whatsoever not to raise the question of what it is that you're using to base your axiomatic definition. And, and again, this is, this is why the word objective is getting so threadbare, because he should have said physical. Because, the, you know, again, we're watching the, the destruction of certain kinds of physicalism that not only asserted the uniqueness of the physical, but the priority of the physical. And 
implicit in this is, and implicit in both talks, is sort of the um, saying that there are there are powers greater than the physical. It's the contrast. In contrast, in opposition to the Tao, according to Lewis, stands the modern ideology, which he calls the poison of subjectivism. Poison of subjectivism. And this ideology, Lewis believes, is an existential threat to Western civilization. It's indeed a threat to humanity as a whole. It's a pernicious error that enables tyrannical power and totalitarianism. It's a fatal superstition that slowly erodes and destroys civilization. It's a disease that he thinks can end our species and damn our souls. It's a big deal, okay? So what is that? Well, the poison of subjectivism upends that ancient, humane, and universal way of viewing the world. Under, in the grip of that poison, reason itself is debunked. Today we'd say reason is deconstructed. Uh, instead, of, instead of reason being the human capacity to participate in the eternal logos, right? So there's an objective order and our reason participates in, our, our minds participate in sort of the rational order of the universe. He, that's not what reason is, according to the subjectivists. Instead, reason is just this kind of brain secretion. It's an epiphenomenon that accompanies certain chemical and electrical events in your cortex, which is the result of blind evolutionary processes and has no more significance than a burp. Okay, so, um, so reason on subjectivist terms is simply an accidental and illusory brain secretion. There's no there there. Similarly, under the influence of subjectivism, moral value judgments are simply projections of irrational emotions onto an indifferent cosmos. So when you talk about goodness and you talk about value judgments, that's just emotions you feel and project onto the world. It's not corresponding to anything real. So truth and goodness here are merely words that we apply to our own subjective psychological states, what we feel. States that we have simply because we've been socially conditioned to have them. And then the subjectivists say, and we might have been conditioned otherwise and maybe in fact ought to, which is super funny to hear them talk about ought to's, but ought to be conditioned otherwise. So because rational thought is just a brain secretion and value judgments are irrational projections, what that means is that the imposition of reason and morality in history and in society is always a dressed up power play. When you say what you, what you believe is true, you're just, it's a power play because it can't be, it doesn't exist. It's just a brain secretion. When you say that's good and that's evil, power play, okay? Lewis saw the seeds of this ideology planted in his own day. However, at that time, it was largely theoretical, okay? Um, it was in vogue among some of the intelligentsia, um, but Lewis saw its way, make, making its way into educational curricula. That's what prompted him to write The Abolition of Man and in the pop popular imagination. Um, he hoped, he wrote at one point, that he hoped and thought that the hard sciences would limit the infection. He thought the hard sciences, and the reason was this, um, you, when you're doing hard science, you gotta sh put up or shut up, right? You gotta have results. Um, research and scientific advancement demands practical results, and so you can't have all of this theoretical nonsense that the humanities departments put out. That's what he thought. Now, we know here in the 21st century that we see technological and scientific advances employed in the service of subjectivism. Okay, so it hasn't been the bulwark that Lewis hoped it would be. 
Some of the latest advances in medicine are not used to heal, but to maim. Not to restore the body to its proper function, but to mutilate the body and render it impotent or barren. Like, this is the thing. One of the famous lines from Abolition of Man, maybe you've heard this one, is um, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. And our modern subjectivists have basically taken that literally. So, what does all this have to do? Now, now, complaining about subjectivism has been a conservative Christian culture war trope for a very long time. And it isn't that the complaint doesn't have merit. It's, I think, a very abstract complaint that a, pot, a lot of people who wield it um, don't necessarily understand what's beneath it do with Aaron's framework for secularization in America well American culture like Western civilization in general is an expression and manifestation of the Tao that's just what it is historically from our founding documents to our customs and practices from the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee across the plains of Texas I think this is I think this is an overselling there are plenty of Catholics and Orthodox who will complain just how um, nominalist Protestantism and, and the American separation of church and state is. And, and that's, a, that's a worthwhile conversation to have. And so... From sea to shining sea... Um, American culture for most of our history has been firmly grounded in an express belief in the objective, rational, and moral order of the universe. That's who we are. Now, I say that, don't misunderstand. Um, that doesn't imply that America has perfectly conformed to the Tao. Follow that? The fact that I'm saying we're an expression of it doesn't... Now this is where this gets interesting because I think beneath it, there's an implicit assumption that conformity to the Tao does what? I think the implicit assumption is conformity to the Tao brings success, happiness. Uh, we could call it virtue. And I'm not disagreeing with any of that. But there is within Christianity always also the theme that he begins with when he talks about, in this world you will have trouble, um, they'll hate you like they hated me. I think a deep part of the Christian gospel and of the life of Jesus is the assertion that the perfect Son of God comes into the world and it's it's the rest of John 1, the light... Um, the people hate the light because they love the darkness. And there's also in, I think, the Gospels, the assertion that there are limitations as to how far you can really get in this dispensation in terms of realizing the kingdom of heaven on earth. There, there's an anti-utopian message within the gospel that says you only get so far in this dispensation, which is why at the end of this dispensation, new heavens and new earth come down with the Lord of life, because there needs to be a renovation. And a lot of 
Christianity is the struggle between, well, well, how much and where and why and when. And again, this is something that is that is also, in that sense, a critique of of where Peterson is going. Um, definition of reality upon. And I think that noting what people do is a very good pointer to the real. So here's another way of thinking about the logos. For the world to be intelligible, it must consist of patterned regularities. And that might be the great discovery of the Greeks in some sense that they're... Okay, and, and this again is a vital importance that the world is intelligible, that the models we create are, are, are not... The world is not simply illusory because a function of illusion is that perhaps even the definition of illusion is that no productive model can be made. It's, it's chaos, it's randomness, and it, there is intelligibility in the world that, that we, we can know the world, and again, this connects to the Tao, we can see patterns in the world and have knowledge even in this world, although limited, and our capacities are limited, but this isn't, this isn't just folly. There are patterned regularities that are superordinate to immediate perception that are in some sense more real. So number would reflect that, for example. Um, are numbers more or less real than the things they represent? And you can make an argument both ways because, again, it depends on your definition of real. But it's a very difficult argument to make that they're less real. And partly that's because if you're a master of number, there's almost nothing that's beyond your grasp. So as a, if your wisdom if the depth of your wisdom is reflected in the utility of your tools, then almost nothing makes you more powerful than to be a master of numbers. And that seems to point to a, an ability to grip some element of a reality that's more fundamental, that is outside of immediate perception. And so, and again, to bring over the language from the Rigney talk, we could talk about subjectivism and why, objective, subjective, and why there is there have to be patterns in the world and there's a reality out there and that's a stable reality and it's a reality that is accessible and is a reality with which we can engage productively one element of the idea of the logos is that there's an order to the world that's superordinate to the apparent order that's more fundamentally real and that you can discover that order in contact with the world and that's the, the, the microcosmic world in some sense, rather than the psychological world. And so that seems useful. And I would say these patterned regularities, they're of two types. There's patterned regularities of being, and, and, and an object is a patterned regularity of being. One of the things I came to understand as I studied the science of perception is that we don't see objects. We see patterns and we infer objects. And so the pattern recognition is more fundamental than the object recognition. It's also the case, by the way, that we don't just see patterns and infer objects. We see useful patterns and infer objects. And I don't mean as a second order inference, I mean as a direct perception. And so it's quite obvious, sophisticated psychologists of perception have noted that in some real sense, the perception of the meaning of a phenomena, phenomenon precedes the perception of the phenomena. And, and I, I, I really mean directly. And there's also, 
there's much of what you see, for example, is very much associated with what you can grip. Because even your vision is tightly associated with the, the act of gripping, because what you need to see is what will give you a grip on the world. And now, now, again, this is, Rigney is sort of, well, we're there with Lewis. All of this stuff that Peterson is getting at is all post-Lewis. This is cognitive science. This is developments in psychology and cognitive, cognitive science since the mid-20th century. And, and this is where a lot of this is where well, a lot of what we're talking about in this little corner can actually be brought into a church realm and say, yeah, there's there's further we can go and and we can in fact make this intelligible in in ways. But it, it's difficult because th this is where sort of the objective subjective sort of breaks down because the objective-subjective language is in many ways still sort of embedded in a Lockean, Baconian perspective. And this, this is where you get the transjective with John Verveke, where reality, it isn't just objects out there and the observer in sort of low-resolution models. It's, it's actually our observation, and this sounds subjective, our observations are, there's a lot more going on in terms of the observer-observed dynamic than John Locke could have imagined. And you might say you see the thing and then determine how to grip it, but that's not how it works. Your retina, for example, example which represents patterns in the world, propagates those patterns through your nervous system and manifests itself in such things as preparation for grip. And that's outside of conscious visual perception. And so you cannot make the case that what you do when you perceive is pull in objective sense data and then sort the world from that. The neurology, the, neuro, the neurological investigations have rendered that presumption invalid. Not only that, there's another problem well, let's refer to, we'll, we'll do this in two parts. For the world to be intelligible, it must consist of patterned regularities and their regularities of being and becoming. Another issue is when you encounter the world, do you see what's there? And the answer to that is, well, yes, but you also perceive what could be. And so I would say that what you perceive is an amalgam of the patterned regularities of both being and becoming. And you can think about this and make it intelligible if you think about what happens when and, and again, if your listener in, say, a modernity mindset, what he just said sounds like subjectivity. And that's where this whole subjectivism language really does break down because the, the object and the subject are, in a sense, in dialogue with each other. And it's not just the subject and the object. We're in dialogue with potential as well. We see meaning. And, and objects aren't what they were presumed to be within modernity. When you wake up in the morning, and you can think about this and make it intelligible. If you think about what happens when you wake up in the morning, you might ask yourself, well, what do you perceive when you wake up in the morning? And you open your eyes and you might say, well, I perceive my bedroom. And I suppose in some very trivial sense, that's true. Although generally your bedroom is so familiar that you don't need to perceive it. You've already automatized that perception and it has almost zero functional utility. 
I suppose you have to perceive it well enough to wend your way through it when you step out of bed, but that isn't really what you perceive, not, not my experience, and I believe this is a very common experience, is that what you perceive when consciousness dawns in the morning is the horizon of possibility that's associated with the world in front of you. And so what you really see, as far as I can tell, is something directly akin to the chaos that God encounters as the word, the logos, at the beginning of time, which is there's, a, there's pattern regularity of being, that's a solid object because it propagates itself across time in this three-dimensional form, but then there's a cloud of possibility around each object, which is what additional realities it could manifest depending on how you act in relationship to it. And that's not only true of simple objects, because simple objects can be many things, so a, uh, a heavy drinking mug can also be a weapon, for example, which begs the question of what is that thing? Um, it's a drinking glass and a weapon, uh, and broken, it's a knife. And, and many, many objects, if not all, have quite a wide cloud of possibility around them. And then the interactions between objects have a tremendously wide distribution of possibility. And that's the becoming that's implicit in the being. And I think that's actually what you confront when you wake up in the morning. Because generally what happens is that as consciousness dawns, and consciousness is an agent that contends with being and its potential transformations, you see arrayed in front of you a set of indeterminate possibilities which you could bring into being as a consequence of your imposition of vision with some degree of, of effort and energy. And what you do in some real sense is prioritize in rank order the importance of the possibilities that you contend with maybe even before you get out of bed. And I would say, in some real sense, if you're not doing that, you're actually not living up to your possibility. That what we really are, rather than automated deterministic machines, and by the way, we can't be that because the future is indeterminate and a deterministic machine cannot calculate the proper navigation path through an indeterminate horizon. You're a visionary that imposes a structure of priorities on a horizon of possibility. And that means, in some very real sense, far more than mere metaphoric, that you are, in fact, an embodiment of the Logos. And the same thing that manifested itself at the beginning of existence itself, and continually manifests itself, in some real sense, as that beginning in the world of your conscious apprehension. And we think of these things as myths or as metaphors, and they are that because they're many things, but they're also reflective of something so real that even our notions of objective reality, in some real sense, pale in comparison. And so... Okay, that was a ton in there. And, and you can see in some ways now, again, we're talking in this other, in this other lecture in the Winsome War and okay, so the, the thesis is that well, the 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 negative world is far more threatening now because this attack on we can just use language a little bit interchangeably the attack on the logos attack on the Tao is further along than it was and therefore we must reclaim it. Okay, well that doesn't really address tactics. 
And, and what Peterson gets at here in, in this little section is that built into this is a potentiality that um, is given by the Logos. And again, the fact that we're dealing with Tao and Logos, we're dealing with universality. And, and that's really critical when we get to the part that I'm not going to, don't know if I'm going to get to it in this video or not, but when we get to the, when we get to this section on um, a system of values, unnested values, storing emulation model, maybe we'll just jump to that place I want to go in the other video. Okay, let's get a little further in this one. Uh, Christian moral norms as one of the key elements of uh, the three world paradigm. So uh, he mentioned in his talk, right, that the Cold War sort of limited the spread of uh, subjectivism, what I'm calling subjectivism, or what we could call, you could think of as uh, Tao rejection or undow, <laughs> the opposite of the Tao, undow. Um, so, and, and the Cold War was uh, it limited the spread because we in the West embraced the God-given moral order in opposition to the Soviet Union with its atheistic communism. Does that make sense? Like, so, and in the end of the Cold War, as he said, sort of opened the door to that neutral world because we didn't have the existential threat of atheistic communism, like staring us in the face. And so then rejection of the Tao just begins to kind of subtly spread through American society in the neutral world. And so to underscore that point, um, he used the example of the three scandals of American presidents. I just want you to consider the changing positions on gay marriage of the three most recent Democratic presidents. Um, presidents that span the time period. So in 1996... Now, now it's a little unfair here to not mention uh, George H.W. Bush's public embracing after his presidency of gay marriage and the fact that uh, Trump, for all of his... Um, Trump did nothing in terms of this sexual revolution. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and you can certainly correct me in the comments section, but... Um, yeah, you can you can mark this with Democratic presidents, but I don't think that the Republicans um, have actually really, this has not been a big issue for them either, in all fairness. At the tail end of the positive world, Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act into law, expressing, this is, I went and looked it up, expressing his longstanding belief that marriage is an institution for the union of a man and a woman. It's a quote. Now, in the midst of the neutral world, Barack Obama campaigned on his own personal belief in traditional marriage, but then resisted any further attempt to protect the institution. So famously in 2011, his Department of Justice stopped defending the Defense of Marriage Act in the courts. He refused, just said, we're not going to defend that anymore. So I, he campaigned, I believe in that, right? There's that famous time with him and Rick Warren, right, where he asked and Obama said that. But then once he's in office, we're not defending that law anymore. That's classic neutral world orientation. And then, of course, Joe Biden, serving as the president in the negative world on this side of Obergefell, unapologetically embraces the undow, the rejection of the Tao, the rejection of the moral order, and has sought to enshrine its incoherence and absurdity into law and policy. That's the fundamental... Okay, now that's super broad, but le leaving, leaving the evaluation aside, again, I want to get back to the question of, okay, so it's undow... It's unreality enshrining this in law and policy. What will that reap? Now, again, in a Christian conflict, will it reap the wrath of God? You know, Romans one. That's a that's a very fair question, and you got to think about. Well, you know, the Tao is very much connected with, let's say, God number one, 
the 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 arenic god this is the this is the structure of reality this natural law is sort of parallel to laws of nature let's say and so then to go against it you wind up kicking against the goads you wind up in in trouble with this but they're not really he's not really going there here in this talk quite yet middle shift that uh, Aaron's identifying the enshrinement of the undow in law has unleashed chaos into the body politic and conservative Christians as those who embrace guard seek to live within the moral order the rational order find themselves alienated from a society that is increasingly unmoored from the Tao okay now it's really it's really helpful to remember that this is this alienation again goes back all the way through the different elements of the culture war back into the 1980s and the moral majority and then back into the 1920s and the the modernist fundamentalist fight so there it's it's very easy to sort of take this culture war stuff and say here it is and it's right now and it's like you know, let's, let's not forget all of our history here. Does that make sense so far? We're good? Okay. At the same time, here's, here's what I want to say. So he, he uses the language, uh, Aaron's using the language of Christian moral norms. That's fine. I'm wanting to encourage Christians to speak in the language of the Tao or the nat or natural law or the moral order, whatever terms you use, in uh, over simply Christian moral norms. Okay? Or, to, or maybe it's better always remember that when you are talking about Christian moral norms, you are talking about something that is universal, normative, natural, and baked into creation. You are not talking about a distinctly Christian imposition on an otherwise amoral world. You're talking about something baked into the fabric of reality. This is really, really important for us as Christians to get. Um, and it's especially important because of the way that the poison of subjectivism and its notions of social construction, everything's socially constructed, and that's reinforced by our modern uh, techno-culture and the way that we relate to the world. They've influenced all of us, including Christians. Here's the now, now, again, if I, if I try to give a little bit of a landscape, I mean, Peterson has now gone into cognitive science and the sort of Lockean... Baconian world that set up modernity is coming undone. There's going to be tensions here between Rigney and his, um, I think, undeconstructed modernity and how he sets this up. And let's say Peterson, even though both of them will will continue to assert that there is a there is a an order to the world that is that expresses itself in modernity and reality. And again, neither are getting into, there's sort of a, a threat, a hazard here. Okay, if you, if you step away from the Tao, if you step away from the Logos, what you will, what, what, what will happen? Well, there'll be uncreation, there'll be undow, there'll be anti-Logos and, and what? And in other words, things will become undone and, and, and again, there's sort of this threat behind, but it's not really asserted. And, and this, this gets important in the Winsome War because a lot of the question of the Winsome War is how is, how is political power, police power, state power to be used in this context? And this is where Rigney is going to go and... 
it's really hard for me to sort of follow the thread with him on this. Here's what I mean. As modern people, our default uh, way of being in the world is to regard reality as fundamentally plastic and malleable. We, we think of reality, we orient to reality as malleable. And, and again, I don't think this language is helping because he's not really engaging. This is where sort of some of the comments in this little corner, I think, can help because are you talking about the material world? Because depending on, you really have to sort of lay out what is spirit, what is logos, what is material and matter, and how do they relate? It's like Plato, okay? And so progressives, subjectivists claim Christians or conservatives or the patriarchy have in the past molded the Plato of reality in an oppressive, patriarchal, self-serving way. Okay, and this is where you connect up with the suffering bit. And now what they want to do is free people to mold the Play-Doh of reality in whatever way they choose. We ought to be free to construct our identity, our sexuality, what have you. Now, that way of thinking about malleable reality is so pervasive that even faithful Christians can be subtly catechized into it. You begin to think that ethical reasoning is a fight for who controls the Play-Doh. Okay, so the pro sexual progressives, they want to mold the Plato in a progressive way, and then the Christian egalitarians, they want to mold it in sort of a egalitarian way, and we conservatives, we want to mold reality in a biblical, complementarian, patriarchal, whatever word you want to use, way. But the unstated, implicit assumption is that reality is Plato, and that's not true. This false view of reality, here's what it does. It feeds an insecurity among Christians because we think we're losing the fight for control of the Plato. And that last point I agree with. But again, jumping ahead, you have to ask, well, won't their plans just come apart? And he's going to address this, actually, with a, a nice little illustration. And that's where a robust understanding of the Tao or natural law or moral order and its proper relationship to the Bible is so important because you have to keep two truths in mind. Okay, work this down. Here's two things you must always keep in mind. Number one, reality is not Plato. It is not infinitely malleable. God has made a cosmos, an ordered and structured world with integrity, unity, harmony, and design. That's truth one. Second, rebellion against that design is possible and can be temporarily effective. I stress the word temporarily, okay? Okay, and this is a, this is a key point. And, and I'm glad that, you know, a lot of what he's sort of laid out here is stuff that I've been hearing for 40 years. So I'm glad to see, all right, we're, we're beginning to address a turn here. So that's good. In other words, it's real, it's there, but you can rebel against it and be temporarily effective. And as one of our poets, uh, Chris Stapleton, has said, um, falling feels like flying until you hit the ground. Okay? So falling feels like flying to the grids. Again, preachers know how to communicate. It's very effective. It's a very effective illustration. Temporarily successful, just like Wiley Coyote in midair before he goes. Okay? So there's a tension here, and I want to acknowledge it. Okay? Rebellious human beings can be temporarily successful. They can violate God's design in the created order, but conversely, reality is stubborn, and nature will take her revenge. Okay, so where does this leave us? 
Now, again, it's interesting. There's so much sort of implicit modernism in here, almost a deism, and you can sort of see why, maybe you can see why, you know, I started using language of God number one and God number two, because nature is almost, again, sort of God number one in a Romans one sort of way here. How does viewing the three worlds as a shift in American culture's relationship to the Tao help us understand the present times and walk wisely in the world? So here's, I got three things here. So first, I think it encourages us to secure the vestiges of the Tao that persist in our culture and in our laws and to aim to recover those that have been lost. Like this is a worthy aim. So in our homes, in our schools, in our stories, in our churches and in our communities and in our laws, we ought to seek to embrace, recover, live within the Tao, within God's objective, rational, and moral order. Okay, and so again, this is have, the, have our little laws reflect the law behind the law. We can use language like that. And in good Protestant fashion, we ought to do so align, along the lines of Calvin's view of the law. So think of this as the three uses of the Tao. So first, the Tao acts as a mirror. This is, these are Calvin's three uses of the law, if you're familiar with that. Three uses. I'm a Calvinist, so I like this part. The, law. the Tao is a mirror. It shows us both the righteousness of God, who stands behind it, and the unrighteousness of men. So it's, it's the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. That's the first use of the Tao. Second, it acts to restrain evil. Human law, cities, states, nation, ought to reflect and apply the Tao in concrete circumstances. That's what human laws ought to be. And third, the Tao is a guide for us as Christians as we seek, with God's help, to value things according to their value, like to delight in children because they are delightful, to honor old men because they are, in fact, venerable. And so uh, to rightly order our loves and our desires, to structure our homes, churches, and communities in harmony with God's objective order. That's the guide for Christians with God's help. And these all go hand in hand. These are a package deal. Because here's the thing, the Tao, whether it's in homes, practiced in homes, preached in pulpits, taught in schools, expressed in stories, or reflected in law, what does it do? It teaches us and instructs us in what is good and right. And when those laws are backed with just punishment, they also restrain evil. And when they're embodied in a people, they adorn the truth with gracious conduct. And so uh, again, I'm gonna quote Martin Luther King here. Uh, he expressed the point well, he said at one point, it may be true, listen, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. Now, what's really interesting in the, the latter part of this is how much uh, Dr. Martin Luther King he does lean on, which is interesting because in my, my last year at Calvin, I, we had a history seminar, and I, I chose to do um, reading on Dr. King's theology. And you know, Dr. King was was you know, Dr. King's theology wouldn't have been um, uh, very welcome in a conservative Reformed church. But um, I, I, his use of Dr. King here is, I think, very very effective. Okay. So today, what might we say? How might we, what might I say? Today we might say, it would be good if doctors didn't castrate boys and mutilate girls because they themselves embrace the Tao. That'd be good. 
It'd be even better if those kind of actions were unthinkable because the doctors love Jesus and the children who bear his image. But short of that, it's still good if doctors refuse to castrate boys and mutilate girls because to do so would bring down upon their heads civil and criminal penalties. That's good. Now, we've jumped to application pretty quickly here because, of course, when uh, Matt Walsh goes around asking what's a woman, uh, he's talking to plenty of doctors that are giving plenty of answers that um, Joe Rigney, um, I certainly assume, wouldn't be happy with. So... So King's statement suggests that law, uh, that law has no effect on the heart. However, he goes on to say things aren't that simple. He says law may not directly change the heart, but still have some influence on it. Here's a quote. While the law, this is King, while the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. And when you change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes and the hearts will be changed too. In other words, good laws restrain evil and teach what is good. And in doing so, they affect our habits, and our habits create space for hearts to change. I'm going to come back to that. Okay, and this is, this is really important because he's, he's setting up an argument here, and I'm glad I'm going to listen to this. will be the second time I'm really listening through this because it gets a little complex. For now, all I'm trying to highlight is that securing, recovering the Tao is a gospel issue. It's the language we talk, right? Gospel issue. Why is it a gospel issue? Because the gospel... Now, it's helpful to know that in sort of the young, restless, and reformed community, gospel becomes sort of a special magic word. And, and usually, I mean, if you listen to enough Tim Keller, you kind of know what it means. Gospel is only good news in the face of the bad news that we have broken God's law and stand beneath his judgment. And right there, I think, Really? I'm not quite sure that's right. Only good news in that context? Now, it certainly is good news in that context, but I think right there is a pretty significant reduction. And so a society that seeks to live within the Tao, however imperfectly, is a society constantly engaged in pre-evangelism. It's pre-evangelism. The Tao tells us how we ought to live. We then discover we don't live up to it. We fail and fail miserably. And at that point, we are ready to hear what the book of Romans has to say. Here's how Luke... And, and again, I... Yes. Lewis expressed this. And, and, and don't forget, um, falling feels like flying until you hit the bottom. I love this quote. When grave persons express their fear that England is relapsing into paganism, so this is in the 40s, um, so when grave persons express their fear that England is relapsing into paganism, I am tempted to reply, would that she were. <laughs> For I do not think it at all likely that we shall ever see Parliament opened by the slaughtering of a garlanded white bull in the House of Lords, or cabinet ministers leaving sandwiches in Hyde Park as an offering for the dryads though Charles III may have new ideas. <laughs> now, that's a clever line. But this is where things get, get really muddled because I'm beginning to lose track of the threads because on one hand, you have the thread that now here in late modernity, early post-modernity, we have all sort of lost touch with the Tao. And so then paganism is good. Okay, so in that sense, I can kind of understand Lewis. 
But you also sort of made the argument, and with you know justifiably, that part of what modernity does, especially in the hands of, let's say, the founding fathers, who are these classicists, is, is sort of enshrine a very logos-centered way of trying to take the best of Greek culture and the best of Hebrew culture and establish laws and in, in sort of a an American in, in sort of an American narrative, the United States sort of becomes like the peak of it's this is a very this is a late 19th, early 20th century position that America is sort of the summation of Protestantism and a light to the world because of it. America is God's chosen nation. This is American exceptionalism and all of this. And I don't quite know how Lewis's quote fits into that picture, especially as we get now into the question, which is central to the Winsome War of, is a is a reconstitution of the a reestablishment of the Tao in American civil law progress or regress with respect to what he will lay as a higher agenda, which is a let's say a very Protestant salvationism. So keep your eye on that ball as this talk continues. If such a state of affairs came about, th listen, then the Christian apologist would have something to work on. For a pagan, as history shows, is a man eminently convertible to Christianity. He is essentially the pre-Christian or sub-Christian religious man. The post-Christian man of our day differs from him as much as a divorcee differs from a virgin. The Christian and the pagan have much more in common with one another than either has with our modern subjectivists. Okay. Fair, good, but there are a lot of divorcees around. And we are seeing a neo-paganism of divorcees, to keep working that metaphor. So Lewis here mentions full paganism with polytheism and sacrificial offerings. Instead, we might think in our context of cultural Christianity. So like classical pagans, cultural Christians are sub- Well, well and you know, it's also interesting that he, he used the, the gay marriage illustration because, I mean, they'll pretty quickly look at Greek pederasty and um, sexual practices in the Roman Empire, et cetera, et cetera. That's certainly not the paganism that you're looking to reestablish because Christianity will win, is it? I mean, and, and again, if that's the case, then, of course, leaning heavily on your argument of the Tao, well... Christian, and therefore eminently convertible, which is why I don't join those Christians who welcome the demise of cultural Christianity or Bible Belt religion or whatever you call it. Their argument is uh, cultural Christianity was a hindrance to the spread of the gospel, lulled people into a false sense of security, covered over rank evil, and was a stumbling block to unbelievers. So good riddance. Glad it's gone. Now, there's some truth in that kind of criticism, okay? But I still think it's an error to say good riddance. Cultural Christianity never saved anyone. And to the degree that it covered over sin and wickedness, God hated it, and we ought to condemn it. However, now, now, okay, I completely understand the argument. He's countering those who, who basically say good riddance to cultural Christianity. But then you just use that Lewis quote, which is 
almost basically Lewis saying good riddance to um, English Christianity. English, because English nominalism, English cultural Christianity was at least as strong in the UK as it is in the US. So the coming of the negative world is a good thing? This is where things sort of break down here. Cultural Christianity, however imperfect, was and is a manifestation of the Tao, and in that sense, it's pre-evangelism. It tills the soil to prepare it for seed. As Lewis said, it gives us something to work on and to work with. It teaches us through laws and customs and cultural practices the reality of God's order. And so while cultural Christianity never saved anyone, it did give many a sense of sin and of guilt, which prepared them for the good news of Jesus. And its loss is a tragedy. In contrast, our contemporary social order is catechizing all of us in subjectivism. Our laws, customs, stories, rituals, all of these aim to undermine and overthrow that givenness of the moral order. Richard Hooker, the English reformer and a hero of Lewis, once wrote of the... And, and someone in a deeply Christendom society. ...destructive effect of ungodly customs. Listen to this and see if it sounds familiar. Perverted and wicked customs, perhaps beginning with a few and then spreading to the multitude and then continuing for a long time, may be so strong that they smother the light of our natural understanding because men refuse to make an effort to consider whether their customs are good or evil. Okay, now Hooker is how many centuries ago at, in some ways, sort of the beginning of modernism coming up, which was, so he had a great deal of paganism and which was, you know, part of the complaint of the Protestant reformers. So this is where the, I sort of lose the thread on this talk because on one hand, he is, I, I, I'm just not quite sure where he wants to go because part of the difficulty here is modernity as such isn't coming back. This is the effect, this is the temporary effect, right? Temporary rebellion, it can be successful perverted and wicked customs. So the poison of subjectivism, when expressed in customs, enshrined in law, removes the ordinary checks to error and evil by denying that good and evil exist at all. That's what Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision that redefined marriage, did. Marriage is already weakened by no-fault divorce and the destigmatization of adultery and fornication. Like the lust, desire... I'm not sure... Adultery has been destigmified. Um, that, that's that's one of the elements of traditional marriage, and people. That's a again. It's that's a function. People don't like to be cheated on, and so that that's sort of a function of expressivism. It isn't that people now, when there's adultery, say, "Oh, they committed adultery. Oh, I don't care." No, not so much. And sinful passions had already done a number on marriage, and they were primed and ready to go. But those passions and desires had, in some measure, been and And it's also not the case that there wasn't plenty of double standard looking the other way in terms of, um, in terms of adultery. I mean, mistresses in France were, you know, I've, I've read that quote from, um, from Durant, Will Durant. Will Durant. Um, you know, about, you know, everybody, of course, had a mistress. American presidents have had a mistress. I mean, you're just sort of piling some of these, you just sort of, 
the I'm losing the thesis here. Restrained by law and custom. Flowing from the Dow. Obergefell unleashed the passion and placed them in the driver's seat. Those desires are now in the driver's seat, and they lead from L to G to B to T to Q and whatever the heck's living under plus. And yet, nevertheless, because we live in God's world and not the world of our fevered imaginations, we can't escape the pressure of the objective moral order, pressing upon us both from our conscience and from the scriptures. And so this is part of our task as Christians. Well, well... But, but that would also, that would be especially true of people who are pursuing that and those who are feeling it, he said, basically are the Christians who know it. Well, they might be sensing it and, and fair enough, but those who are feeling it, ex, you know, experientially apart from, so if you go back to my Romans class, you have sort of law number one and law number two. Law number one is sort of Romans one and law number two is the Mosaic code. Uh, they should be feeling it in, uh, they should be feeling the wrath of God in a Romans 1 sort of way if they are giving themselves over to uh, these non-Taoist practices. To labor to creatively, clearly, and courageously press the law of God on the consciences of men. Like Nathan, like Nathan with King David, we must work with God's help to awaken that moral sense of our friends and families, which we know is there and then to lovingly, clearly turn it around and say to them, you are the man. We do this in hope that they come to feel their lostness and therefore able to see and savor the glory of the heart of the gospel, who is Jesus. That's the first. Now, second, these ones are shorter. Here's the significance. Oh, okay, so the sort of nature grace, implicit nature grace stacking, which, isn't, which is much more of a Catholic process than a Protestant process, is really sort of muddled here. Um, you know, also you have 1 Corinthians 5, where in a sense you turn over the man who is sleeping with his likely stepmother, turn him over to Satan for, I mean, is that is that what we're doing here? Uh, of the Tao for the Three Worlds and the Culture Wars helps us to explain, as Aaron highlighted, some of the fault lines among evangelicals. I think one major fault line here, many secondary fault lines flow from this, I think we're in alignment on this, is between those who see the societal rejection of the Tao as fundamentally different from the sinfulness of previous generations. I think that's a, a bottom line, baseline division. There's a difference, so um, in other words, there's a difference between regular, even pervasive violations of the Tao, like that's what Jim Crow was, and the wholesale rejection of the idea of an objective moral order at all. Those are just... And, 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 okay, and, and this, again, is where I, I, it sort of gets muddled because supposedly in the positive world where we had Jim Crow, and he just, you know, rightly named it. I mean, he's, he's not a racist, <laughs> but you have, to fig, you have to factor these into the picture. So if you're an African-American living in deep Mississippi in 1940s, um, Life in 2020 might be better, might be, um, likely is. That's where, that's where sort of gaining a global evaluation is really difficult. Just in different categories. So press this even farther. Some Christians, right, look at the present situation and say, look, we've always had sin. Go back to Adam, right? And for the last hundred years, we've had relativism and subjectivism. Lewis is writing about it in the 40s. So 
There's not a fundamental difference between 1920s, 1960s, 1990s, 2020s. And so what I'm saying is that there are organic connections between those earlier eras and today. What we are seeing is the fruit of that seed. Okay? But again, I, see, I don't, think the, I don't think the comparison is quite this simplistic because, so let's set up the sexual revolution versus Jim Crow. Which is worse? How can you answer that question? A lot of it depends on, well, who are you? And, and what, is, what has been compelling in the broader society is that, let's say, the liberationist model has given a compelling narrative that sort of puts these things into place. Whereas, I don't know that his narrative is really sort of holds together in this. This is the, the flowering of the seed sown in the, that, those eras are coming into bloom. That's basically Carl Truman's argument in his recent books. So there's a difference between subjectivism as an ideology embraced by certain academics and... Uh, and elites, and then subjectivism as a legal regime, a social order, an educational program, and a market force. So in the, in the contemporary world, the major institutions of society have swallowed the poison of subjectivism. Big business, big education, big tech, big media, big entertainment, big government are largely aligned in dismantling the vestiges of the Tao and imposing wicked custom on society. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to defend a lot of the, the wokish stuff that has been going on, but I don't know that his narrative necessarily works the way he wants it to here. And so the fault line for Christians concerns whether how big of a shift that is. And so I just want to say a word. I'm assuming that if you're at this conference, you're probably like, yeah, we see the big shift. So I want to say a word to you about how do you help your friends and family who don't see it? What, what can you do? And here's, what I, here's, here's what I, part of what I think is underneath this. Okay? Um, many of us, all of us, want our friends and our family and our neighbors to know Jesus. That's, we want that. We want them to know Jesus. Okay? And we don't want them to stumble. And we don't mind if they stumble over Jesus but we don't want them to stumble over other things. Like we think, like if they stumble over Jesus, that's okay. That, that, that's, the gospel says that, the Bible says that. Stumbling over Jesus, he's a stumbling block, that's okay. But let's like remove all of the other stumbling blocks that we can. And I think part of what I'm struggling with here is that Jesus is kind of removed from the other stumbling blocks and there isn't sort of a, a more coherent vision of the connection between Jesus and these other stumbling blocks. And I think, again, this is part of the reason why there's a there's a hunger for traditions that have a coherence of more of a seamless system from top to bottom. You'll see that in the Orthodox. You'll see that in the Roman Catholics. And I think a lot of Protestants are sort of struggling with it. And and so you almost see Jesus, you almost see a, a dual system here where there's sort of the binary you know, Jesus, yes or no, saved or unsaved, and then there's this other system down below of um, alignment with alignment with the Tao, and well, and and to a degree, some of those tensions, I, I understand those tensions because 
which I mentioned early on in this talk, the part of the implication of a cohesive system from top to bottom is that if you get alignment with the Tao, you don't need Jesus. This is part of what Flannery O'Connor mentioned um, in the Jim Crow South. If you get alignment with Jesus, you, you don't, if you get alignment with the Tao, you don't need Jesus. And instead of beginning to sort of understand how Jesus and the Tao relate to one another in a cohesive system that is actually being able to integrate into uh, legal structures. I, I, I don't have the answers here, but this is what I'm seeing in terms of this presentation. Okay. Here's the problem. You can't separate Jesus from his demands. You can't separate Jesus from the demands of the moral law, which he established in the creation of the world. Okay, so now he's trying to piece it together, this tension that I was just talking about. We, you cannot, you must not water down or mute the voice of God in his word and in our conscience. And it's really tempting to do so. And this is what's underneath a lot of that resistance. How tempting is it to present Jesus only, keyword, as the fulfillment of people's deepest desires and aspirations, as the source of comfort and happiness without ever pressing upon them the reality of God's law and their sin. Super tempting, right? It's really easy. Well, well, well it shouldn't work <laughs> because if Jesus is in alignment with the Tao, then it shouldn't work at all. And, you know, it's a fair point he's making. To turn Jesus into one more malleable part of reality, one more piece of Play-Doh, that we can mold and shape however we want. It's easy to remake God in our image rather than face the fact that we've dishonored him as the one whose image we bear. And so with our friends and our neighbors, we must have clarity, patience, and firmness with other Christians who are reluctant to press home the moral demands that we are facing and that they're rejecting because they don't want people to stumble over something that's not Jesus. And it's like, that is Jesus. I'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so he's addressing my, my, my question here. Last thing here. Um, so thus far I've been insisting the three worlds is largely about the Tao and defending, recovering, seeking to live within it is crucial for our calling as Christians in the present generation. And so my final point though is this. I also wanna insist that the Tao is both important and impotent. It's important, but it's impotent. It's crucial and it's insufficient. Now you just connected with Jesus and I'm feeling disconnection already. Reason simple, as I've said, the Tao is law, not gospel. While it may show our need for a savior, it doesn't save. And it's vital, it's vital that we recognize that it's embedded in our nature as human beings and handed down to us from uh, generations past. It's, it's important and vital that we recognize that the Tao is clarified and expressed and applied in the scriptures. God himself speaks in human language to press home and ground his design for us in the face of our sinfulness. Like the, the scriptures and this, um, the Tao and the Bible speak with one voice. Nature and scripture both testify to the same objective reality. But even more, it's crucial that we recognize whose voice it is. And again, back to, okay, so if you have the Tao, do you need Jesus? Because again, there's there's a two-level system with that, that for, he tried to bring it close together and then they kind of flew apart again. And you know, this when 
Yeah, I'm running out of time, so I can't go much further. I'm going to have to. I want to get more into Peterson's talk because it's a it's a really good it's it's a it's a helpful talk for understanding Peterson. And if you can understand this talk, you can understand a lot of where where Peterson is going. But to but to bring up the Hezi argument here, what we're struggling with is in fact having all of these pieces come together. And what what we're seeing here with the you know my kin because these are reformed Christians. And so I should have, I should be on the same page with many of them on a bunch of different things. And in fact, I am. You just, you just see that, you just see the seams coming up again and again in terms of the system. Okay. We've got that. We've got the, we've got the Tao. How does that relate to Jesus? How does that relate to salvation in a Protestant revivalist American context? Um, and then of course, Eschatology lurks behind this because, of course, you've got some, you know, uh, battleground isn't too far from Doug Wilson, Moscow, Moscow, not Moscow, Moscow, Idaho, where you've got some more post-millennialists. So that that eschatological vision impacts very much this winsome this winsome war in terms of strategy. And, and it's it's a little interesting how someone can be as polemic as Doug Wilson and post-millennial. Post-millennial basically means that you're you're looking at in some ways the the the, the pursuit of the Tao just seamlessly continues to rise into the new heavens and the new earth, whereas pre-millennials you have basically history is getting worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, you have a rapture and a sudden interruption, depending on all the dispensational amils sort of hold it all in tension and say, eh, it's a little, it's, we're, we're not going to stand either a downward slope or an upward slope. So, and that impacts very much what your tactics are going to be. We have to move from the Tao, objective order in our human nature, to the word of God, the scriptures, to the Word Himself, who is in the beginning with God. Okay, now we're connecting back to the Logos. God, who indeed Himself is God, and who was made flesh for us and for our salvation. So Lewis says this explicitly. There's a letter he wrote to Clyde Kilby, a professor at Wheaton, big fan of Lewis's, largely responsible for sort of the Lewis uh, love in America. Lewis, in a letter to him, wrote, the Tao is the necessary expression in terms of our temporal existence of what God by his own righteous nature is. The Tao is just God's nature in creation. He says, one could even say of it that it was begotten, not made. For is not the Tao simply the word himself considered from a particular point of view? In other words, when Lewis says the Tao, lurking, he's saying Tao because he's talking to a wide audience and he's trying to stress universality. But he knows that behind the Tao is the word, the Logos, Jesus himself. So in order to defend, recover, and live within it, we must embrace, welcome, and celebrate the reign of King Jesus. So I just want to conclude with, I think, the psalm for the moment, which is Psalm 2. So listen carefully. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth... Now this is a frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament, and in this context, super interesting to end with. Governors, senators, congressmen, presidents, judges, bureaucrats set themselves, the rulers, CEOs, thought leaders, 
celebrities, academics, and activists, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. Our nature, the created order, reason and natural law, the Tao, these keep us in bondage. So let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, from eternity past to Christmas morning to Easter Sunday, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations, including this one, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, in light of that, governors, senators, cabinet secretaries, be wise. Be warned, O CEOs, celebrities, and college presidents of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Okay, nice sermonic ending, but okay, the Tao, how far are we going to go with this? First, the, the, what one tension is, you know, you could say as like, as like Jewish people, like we're chasing this, like one day we'll get out of exile, one day we'll have a land, like now your hands are on the wheel and you're like, all right, let's do this. So like, you know, um, uh, and then the question is, okay, if you got that far, you can't be doing that with the toolkit of exile, but now the people in power are saying, all right, so we got here. So we're definitely going to cut the funds and make sure all the fun goes to these massive groups of uh, Haredi Jews that don't serve in the army and don't do, uh, don't uh, have secular studies and are a huge drain on the society, but we're just going to fund them. And then you have a secular being like, well, what do you mean? And it's called like, yeah, it's a political game. And they're very proud about saying, we have rabbis that tell us what to vote. And then we do that. And you guys could do that too, but you guys seem to bicker all the time. We have God telling us what to do. And we're going to utilize this system the best we can. So last government fell because <laughs> it's crazy to think about though, because there is a religious member of Knesset that says, whoa, one second, you're going to change the status quo and bring in wheat, bread products into the hospital on Passover? No way. Shut this government down. You're like, shut the government down means like hospital, schools, everything. And they're like, nope, this is what it means. And then you have religious rabbis that are like MKs were voted by their are playing the, the 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 political game and at the same time going to rabbis and ask their permission saying like yeah it's nice that the the prime minister said that but you know he's just a man and like god is very present in these conversations now in the army sorry sorry please what what's that scott so yeah this is i think where again as i said earlier there's Israel's sort of this little microcosm, and it's convenient because, okay, it's, it's not Christianity, it's Israel. And there's been this long history. Um, Yosef will say something right after I get off. Uh, that was Yehuda Kurtzer. Um, that Judaism, um, basically, what, it, what it's been doing the past, let's say, 150 years or so, 
has essentially been trying to play catch up with the Western Christian world in many ways because they had hundreds of years through the Renaissance and the Reformation, the Counter Reformation, and the Peace of Westphalia, and the emergence of the nation state, and then the Enlightenment, and into you know the revolutions of the 19th century, etc., and then 20th century. They had a long time to deal with, adapt to, um, wrestle with modernity and all these different forms, humanism, enlightenment, science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, secularism. Um, whereas Jews kind of at, you know, at emancipation essentially got hit by everything at once that had been building for 300 years. Right. Um, not that's not totally true. Obviously, there are some changes, but like for the for a lot of it hits us really, really, really quickly. Um, I think this ties into both your comments and also Paul's last comment before he left. Like a lot of this is Jews and their and then Israel kind of de- trying to deal with this at such an accelerated pace, uh, more than even the rest of society in some ways, um, because and, and part of that's because of our history of conservatism um so like we adapt things very late and and when we do adapt them like they've already gone through multiple generations um so think about like how smartphones kind of entered the orthodox world um how tv um not tvs so much but like um internet internet in general i'd say um i'd also say um how kind of middle class culture entered the orthodox and and like yeah, that's, world that's in America, right? With affluence, right? So like it went from like nothing, especially in Israel, right? Like my dad was in Israel in the seventies and eighties. Like compare, and then like the change that happened, mostly under Netanyahu, but like whatever, maybe slightly before a little, uh, some point there was this rapid change in quality of life and an affluence and in attitudes toward wealth um, and like the ability to get imported products at a different, you know, like, and whatever, all these changes happened um, so rapidly. And in some ways, I think like for Judaism, it's going to be especially hard because uh, we've kind of set ourselves up to, to like put all this on, you know, exponentially worse in some ways than the Christian world. Um, I don't the Christian world, the Western world, I'd say. Um, and it's going to be, I think it's also interesting because I don't think it's unique totally because I see it in other parts of the non-Western world. I think China and capitalism, the, 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 the Asian tigers, like those countries, Korea, South Korea, Japan, um, Vietnam in some ways, um, India, like a lot of these countries, right, are not, do not experience, let's say, linear progress. It's not really linear, obviously, but like, let's say, essentially linear progress the way that the West did, where like this is kind of natural and organic. It's very much fits and starts, and you have a sudden burst of like all this new stuff that gets adapted suddenly. Um, and the way that drives the culture and evolution just is very different. Um, and one, it's much more violent, right? Like you're going to have these shocks to the system. Um, and more frequent. More frequent, um, larger, um, well, and... You're gonna have, and you've let, and generally, depending on the system, you so you could have some systems are more flexible and, than others, right? So like some systems cope with the shocks better, like that's, and I think, right? So, but what about like, like for example, like a theological, like a theological system handling those kind of changes? Or uh, Brett Weinstein talks about this about like a um, uh, niche uh, niche switching, right? That he says like. 
So I don't think like that's the point. Like we we are we are skipping skipping along so quickly. And this relates to sort of the the back to the technology question. When you're saying like I don't know if it's going to change. Do you think it's 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 silly for me to talk about? Um, like, forget about you're saying, Khadi, it's 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 a hundred years before like this thing is in your head, okay? A hundred. Okay, so I think you get the point. I, when I listen to, I think Peterson is at least keeping up with the conversation and and trying to hold the past and the and the future together in some ways and. Can have plenty of critiques about. I mean, I got Nate Heil in, in the back of my head with some of his critiques, and so uh, Nate, Nate's got a, a seat in my consciousness Congress. Um, so you got you got you've got Peterson there, and and these guys, and but I you know I I think in in many ways it, it's happening in real time in Israel, and but with 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 much more polarized. With a much more polarized and volatile neighborhood, um, against the percentage of, I mean, the the observance of people in in those places. I mean, taking their taking their version of the Dow seriously is way higher, way more stringent. And yeah, you, you the the government fell because of we you know. <laughs> We during Passover and you know hospitals, educations. I mean, when I so the systems the systems are different, and what we're what we're working through is in fact all of these tensions about, especially in the West, with respect to okay, you've got Jesus and the Tao. Okay, the Word becomes flesh. Okay, nice nice to put them together. How does that impact wheat? And you know, you want to draw a very har- a very harsh, negative world. Okay, um, you just had a major victory on abortion. What does that say? And what has that done? And what are the limits? Again, if you have the Tao, do you need Jesus? You've got to be able to piece those things together. All right, I am I am out of time. I gotta gotta land this plane. Uh, leave a comment.